Hello, friends. Patrick McFarlane here of the Liberty Weekly Podcast, coming at you with episode 110 of the podcast. And as always, the show notes may be found at libertyweekly.net forward slash 110. This is also episode two of the same titled Liberty Weekly Podcast, except spelled Liberty W-E-A-K-L-Y, which is a second podcast that I started for B-side interviews. Um, I, I really want it to be a vehicle where I can you know, hit up random people on Twitter and hit up patrons and invite people on the show and have topics that aren't always liberty related, but can be kind of like a libertarian entertainment podcast too. So this will run as a dual episode of that. And to find and subscribe to this new podcast, please navigate to anchor.fm forward slash Liberty Weekly. And that's Liberty Weekly, W-E-A-K-L-Y. Uh, you'll also be able to find the show notes, which I will post regularly at libertyweekly.net forward slash libertyweekly with that updated spelling. And there will be a category on the website there for you to check out as well. Or just search the new podcast show on your favorite podcatcher because it's up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all those good platforms for you. Uh, but tonight I'm talking with Kyle, who is a patron of the show, um, but also really excited to talk to Kyle because Kyle is somewhat of a new libertarian and he is in that, dare I say, evangelical phase, Kyle. <laughs> That's uh, probably fair. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, we were just going to have a free form discussion about anything and everything libertarianism. I know that, Kyle, you got an agenda of a few topics to hit up here, but um, I also kind of wanted to see if I could perhaps try and explain the libertarian community as I see it, maybe, and hit up the different wings and branches and factions, maybe. So why, why don't you lead us off then, Kyle? What, do you, what did you want to dig into first? Um, let's see. Let's, uh, what, what's really been grating at me recently is um, last time Patrick and I talked, uh, you, you and I talked, we kind of tried to address the rights and ownerships and, and how to deal with uh, balancing rights and responsibilities um, in an ANCAP sense, right? Trying to figure out uh, uh, where there are rights, you must have responsibilities and that kind of stuff. But then we kind of came across the, uh, the minefield that's happening these days about like abortion and uh, vaccines and that kind of stuff. And yeah, once we started looking at those things, we asked, okay, how do you deal with children in an ANCAP situation? Because uh, they can't enter contracts, um, they can't make decisions for themselves, they're under the charge of their parents, but does that mean their property? Does that mean parents can kill them? Uh, like that that kind of stuff. Yeah, and honestly, so this is an area of the law that I really have not, um, well, an area of libertarianism too that I really have not explored too much. And in terms of like legal stuff, sorry, my cat has had no attention from me all day. So maybe you'll hear him in the background. But um, so there, my experience with this in the law is that there's something that's called the guardian ad litem. And if you'd ever had a divorce, you know exactly what a guardian ad litem is. Chances are you would. Uh, but a guardian ad litem is someone who it's basically if there's a divorce, each parent is represented by a lawyer. And if both parents can agree on custody and placement, they will hire, uh, well, the court will appoint a guardian ad litem, which is an attorney that represents the best interests of the children. And so it's an advocate for the children in that sense. And I don't qualify for guardian ad litem work because you have to do special training and they like you to be a parent too. Um, well, you're well on your way for meeting that qualification. But... I am, I am too. So uh, it'll be interesting. And then 
time, once I can accept those appointments, I'll know a little bit more. But in terms of my practice right now, I have I have clients who are getting ready for guardian ad litem interviews. So, I mean, if you could imagine going into an attorney's office and having them interview you and grill you about, you know, there's 16 factors that the statute lists out and we could get into positive versus, um, you know, positive versus uh, the common law system. Sure. But um, so I guess my experience in the formal legal field uh, would be very limited, but 16 factors, I guess, from a libertarian standpoint, my position on how childcare would work is that the the main what you're really going for in an ANCAP or a free market situation is that you need free markets in terms of the creation and enforcement of law. So I'm going to take the cop-out answer and say that, well, it could be solved many different ways. Um, I, I really do think it, it would be. And in my particular David D. Friedman version of anarcho-capitalism, um, an, anarcho an anarcho-capitalist legal system that I talk about um, all the time that's laid out in the machinery of freedom is um, that you would have people subscribe to arbitration systems. Um, and it would be like an insurance fee. It could even be built into insurance. And so I think it, since everyone would theoretically have to have one, I think the subscription fee would be really low. Um, maybe like $20 a month or $40 a month, something like that. Um, well, okay. But that, that's interesting. Um, mm -hmm. but, but who would go to the insurance company and say, Hey, this, uh, I need arbitration for these punitive damages when they're protecting a child, right? Mm -hmm. And a child who has ostensibly been killed by their mother or father or parents, right? Or or someone else, but I'm I'm looking specifically at the like infanticide side of things, right? Oh, so you're looking at it in in that circumstance. Well, well could, mm -hmm. in my opinion, that's that that's the that's the one that doesn't have a clear answer, right? So yeah. if someone else uh attacks your family and kills your child, it, it's the same kind of tort that you would have to deal with um, for self-defense or any other kind of murder, right? Right. But under what circumstance do we deal with the parents killing their own child? Right. Well, I, I mean, I think that that would be in the same way that reciprocally. So if you're dealing, I'll make an analogy to if it's a contract situation where you would like, because, because if you contracted with someone and you didn't want them to um, mess up your contract, you would want the same protection reciprocally as, um, I'm not explaining this very well, but it, say that you entered into a contract with someone uh -huh. and you did wrong. Well, you would agree to the same rules because in that situation, if they wronged you, you would want the same kind of recourse. Yes. So you would agree to a system in which I would foresee that you would have an attorney that would come in to represent the best interests of the child um, just because that's part of the package deal. So if if um, X Corp say, or let's, what's a good name for a legal institution? <laughs> uh, laws are up. You, uh, McFarlane and Co. <laughs> sure, McFarlane and Co. So you subscribe to our justice system. We have maybe statutes or system of case law that we do things by, um, especially for family law. It's kind of part of a package deal. So you could shop laws around and say that, well, say I'm a businessman and it's really important that I have McFarlane and Co.'s protection when it comes to business. Well, McFarlane and Co. also has a family law section. And I guess in terms of the legal issue the area of law you could mix and match maybe I, I mean i don't know exactly how it would work out but i think it would 
the family law portion would be under this umbrella of policies that McFarlane and Co. would have. And if, say, McFarlane and Co. is being, you know, if we ever did business with um, George Mason Law Company, we would agree, pre-agree to a set of laws that would govern any dealings that we had with each other, which would be, and this is how I think that appeal, uh, like appeals courts would work, is that, you know, on the district level, you would have, you'd be represented by McFarland and co. But if you dealt with someone, you know, competing okay. jurisdictions in that way. All right. I, I think that's a little more abstract than I'm, what I'm, I'm trying to nail down here is like, mm-hmm. okay, what, what if two parents got fed up with their child and threw them out, uh, you know, in the street and they died or whatever. Right. right. Or, or some, some terrible thing like that, right? Like what uh, New York just made it perfectly legal for a mother to say, I don't want my child right as it's being born and they kill it right there, right? right. Um, who who then arbitrates? Like how, how do you actually make it illegal to kill your child if the child can't enter into a, any contract? There, there is no contract between the mother and the child. Obviously uh, the child can't consent to anything like that. And I would say uh, common law says age of majority generally means that you can't enter into contact contracts of your own, that uh, those who are your uh, guardians, you know, like whoever you are the ward of in this particular case, takes on the responsibility for that contract that you take on, right? Uh, when when you are a child. So yeah, uh, so, so I, I guess hopefully that lays it out more. How is say an insurance company going to deal with um uh, some parents killing their child, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the free market. Well, I, I do think that, so if you bore a child and you had a child listed, you know, as part, so as part of this arbitration system, I would envision that each like McFarland and co would have a policy that if you are judged, you have paternity over this child or maternity, it is your child. You are the legal guardians of this child. That child would be underneath your policy. And if you kick them out, um, that'd be a different question. I think that'd be more of a question of charity, char- uh, charitable organizations or welfare organizations. So for, for me, it still sounds like you're trying to find some some positive, uh, sorry, some uh, yeah positive influence of these insurance companies and these arbitration units. I think that works great between two uh, consenting and adult individuals that have the ability to uh, build contracts between each other and ha- expect those to be enforced by some you know some force, right? Mm-hmm. And and yes, hopefully in a voluntary voluntarism uh, setup, they would do that on a voluntary basis, right? They they would decide who's going to arbitrate what. Who's going to put up collateral? What, what that's all going to work? But again, we're, I'm trying to get down to like, okay, what do you do about someone who doesn't have the ability to form contracts, right? And I, I think I would bet, um, in the free market of ideas, in the free market of this contract system, um, that most people would agree that a 16 year old or a 14 year old or 10 year old is probably not able to actually enter into a contract, right? That, that doesn't have to be written in law anywhere. I think most uh, reasonable people who actually try to draft contact, contracts and try to do these arbitration elements would be like, yeah, but it's just a kid, right? Um, your, your contract is null and void, go away, right? Um, I, I think that's perfectly reasonable, but I, I think you're, you're kind of driving at where the conclusion I came to, which I'm going to admit is probably a little out there. I, I think there are people who are going to be maybe upset at me for, for suggesting this, but. This is the controversial area of the, of the theory. So, uh, I, but that's why it fascinates me. Like it's, it's one of those edge cases. that's really hard to pin down. Um, and I, I think I've, I've come to the conclusion that the only, that the moral um, foundation that the, the only way to come at it from a voluntarist standpoint saying like, okay, there there is no such thing as law, right? There, there is no um, external non-contractual 
force that will make you do something, right? I think under that situation, in true Ancapistan, children are the property of parents. And if they decide to kill them at any point while they are still considered, you know, property, while they are under the ward, under the uh, care of their guardians, that's legal. There's nothing they can do other than uh, each parent can then individually say like, okay, cool, we have a child together, we're going to put them up in, in our insurance program or with our arbitration program. And if either one of the parents uh, deals damage to the child or kills the child, then the other one can arbitrate in their stead, basically, right? So that works. But if they collude, who defends the child? I, I think that we're, we're kind of differentiating here between, okay, so if you've read, it's not the ethics of liberty, but it's another one by Rothbard. And for some reason, the name of the book is escaping me. It's the uh, it's I think it's for new liberty. Yeah. Where he details out exactly how a libertarian society would handle things. But I think I am not a per I mean, so if Ancapistan were to exist or if we were to have competing anarchic voluntary societies, sure. I don't think that I mean, I would want to live in the more libertarian one, but I don't think that the end game that we're pursuing really is a libertarian society as Murray Rothbard would have envisioned it in foreign new liberty because you're getting at what exactly the libertarian philosophy is for governing children and children's rights and i guess from my perspective i do not necessarily care what that is because what i really want and what i'm looking for and maybe this is more of a pragmatic thing and maybe it it's more of a, it's not a utilitarian, but a consequentialist argument. And one, again, that is asserted by David D. Friedman is that a society without coercion would by necessity be libertarian. But that doesn't mean that it's libertarian because libertarianism is the moral thing. It's libertarian because without that coercion, you can't have a system that would support coercion. So Okay. It, well, that, that sort of undermines some of, well, specifically Keith's stance saying like, oh, it's the the only morally and intellectually consistent platform, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think he's right. And I think actually building on top of the morals of saying like, okay, you have rights, you have responsibilities, and they have to be in equal portions or it doesn't work, right? And as we talked about beforehand, right? Um, sorry, throwback. But anyway, yeah, um, no. so now I understand your perspective on that. I'm trying to build the, the moral foundation saying, okay, what's the only moral answer for this? If I, if I am responsible for a child's action, I have to be also in charge of that child, right? I, I have to be able to decide what is right and what is wrong for them in the same way uh, that I do for my property, right? Now, I would say though, uh, going back, I, th I think it was either the last episode or the episode before that, where you were talking about uh, social, social, whoops. Uh -oh. No, you're there. Um, okay, well, I, lo I lost the feed. <laughs> there we go. Um, sorry about that. Uh, you were saying that like, okay, um, if someone gets into lots of arbitration problems, right, what are they going to do? Are, are they going to lock them away? Well, if that's not a part of their contract, no. But social isolation and contractual isolation and, and basically pushing them out of the community is a, a time-tested, very old, and logically consistent way of doing it. I, I think that's how um, dealing with people in a community who tend who tend to abuse their children and or kill their children, I think that's how that would be solved on a societal level, right? Um, that once you get rid of the um, laziness and abdication of, of responsibility that the state represents, which is... Uh, force for enforcing uh, a good community and that kind of stuff, you're going to have much stronger community ties, which means you're going to notice when, you know, Mary's kid isn't coming to the get together for education, right? Anymore. Oh, you right. might ask like, right. hey, uh, haven't seen little Timmy around. What's going on? She was like, ah, you know, he was mouthing off to me. So I, you know, I stuck him in the basement for 
six weeks or whatever and and he didn't make it you're gonna be like okay i uh you know what i don't i don't think i want you near my kids anymore right so i i think the answer is a real voluntary interaction which is um like you can totally distance yourself from people who decide to take that route right and well so let me give you more of a concrete answer then i think that so one way that this could be solved is that perhaps children are not property but instead when you give birth when you have a child there maybe in a libertarian society there would be a point at which your uh, mcfarlane and co would you have a child you make an appointment with mcfarlane and co in which you undertake a trust relationship where you agree to um, be a trustee to the rights that your children have and agree to be you know the trustee of their rights and hold on to them in a trust like relationship um, where maybe the provisions well, of the trust would be laid out you would voluntarily assent to it i mean um, that's a good idea but yeah. with the free market of of laws and and arbitration and stuff like that there may be some companies that don't provide that or you know they, they don't think it's important like sure yeah whatever you want to do with your kids right mm -hmm. uh if they're not covered it, it would make perfect sense for McFarlane and co to be like oh uh congratulations on having your child right uh <laughs> if you if you want to add them to your your insurance policy or to your arbitration policy you have to enter in a con into a contract that guarantees some level of uh, safety nourishment uh like non-abuse regarding your child and if we find out about any things like that we can void all of your contracts right mm -hmm. but again that's a good way of making sure that your there's accountability on the community level right because they're voluntarily entering into this contract, right? But it's not required. No, no one's gonna come to their door and say, hey, right? Except for their community members. They, they hear screaming children in the basement, right? Um, you guarantee there's gonna, there's gonna be someone with their heartstrings being pulled that's gonna no. come to the door and ask. Right. I so, think you're right. Yeah. Um, like it, it's tough to kind of turn the clock back, if you will, and say, okay, how were children treated in the past? And the answer is as property, right? And what's the moral way to deal with this? As property, right? Now, I, I think actually, um, th thinking about it more uh, kind of along these lines, I think there'd be a really interesting libertarian or, or voluntarist um, culture, cultural rite of passage, if you will, where at, at some point in the child's life, maybe when they're 17, 18, 20 or whatever, um, they would basically go through emancipation. They, they would have to take a stand in, uh, in the community and also in the arbitration services and be like, look, I, I'm ready to no longer be under my parents' banner, right? Uh, they can no, no longer harm me without, without contract, et cetera, right? So they then join the community as a full-fledged member, right? You know, and theoretically, there'd be a big pomp and circumstance, and that would, that would be a, uh, a graduation for a child going from being a part of their parents' purview to being their own now uh, full citizen, if you will, even though such things probably wouldn't exist in Ankepstan. But um, yeah, th that's how I see kind of the progression of that going. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And just um, another touch, I, I don't think that children are property. Um, I I do, and I, I just came up with this uh, trustee uh, beneficiary uh, analogy. I'm just now, so I'm, I'm a little proud of myself about that now. But um, I, I do think that that's what it would be, is that you would act as a trustee, they would be the beneficiaries and also the property that would go into the trust. I Well, I'm mincing my terms here because I just said that children aren't property, but I really don't think that they are property. But I suppose you could say that their rights and their best interests would go into the trust that you would then uh, be the trustee for. But Right. And that'd be one approach. And, and that, like you said, it can be solved in many, many ways. But uh, I'm trying to look at it from the 
the basic moral standards of like, okay, if, if there is no law, if, if someone wanders in from being isolated in the woods for 30 years and has a child with them, what rights does that child have? Yeah. None. You, know, like, you, you, right. can't, you can't force them to be vaccinated. You can't force them to be educated. You can't use force under any circumstance against that child, against the parent's will, because that would be a, the violation of the NAP. Right. So, so this person walks out of the woods in this situation after 30 years and they aren't represented by any kind of rights organization or anything. That's like right. That. You know, yeah. I think I do again, and maybe this is a cop out, but I do think that each arbitration system would have a way of dealing with that person and that person wouldn't be acting in a vacuum either. We would have to assume they would have their own wishes or their own agency. Oh, of course. Or, oh yeah. yeah. Well, but, they walk into the edge of town and go, what, what's going on here? You can bet like every McFarlane and Co or George Mason and Co or whatever um, uh, would be running up to them being like, yes, we would love your business. Uh, you know, it's yeah. just a subscription fee. Like, oh, oh, you want You want to trade um, deer skins for some money? And then, you know, uh, we'll set up that arbitration. That's fine. But if they refuse all of those things, how do you deal with it? Right. The, the beauty of ANCAP is you, you basically turn it all the way back to caveman times and ask, what's what's the law of the land, right? Yeah. How, how do you deal with someone who literally just walks out of a cave, right? That's what I was going to say, actually, is I think there, even, even though we would have these arbitration companies, I still think there would be a fundamental law of the land that is rooted in custom. Yes. And, and that would be the, uh, the tendency to completely isolate someone who abuses their child right. because I, I think the average person, you know, person who's not a complete sociopath uh, is upset by that. They, mm. they may recognize that, yes, it is your property, but just like beating a dog is, is terrible. Like animal abuse is terrible. And most people are looked down on who do that for giggles, right? I think those are important things that we will not lose just just by removing the state, we don't also lose our moral compass. And actually, that's the center of voluntarism and libertarianism is the state means nothing when it comes to our moral integrity as people, as, mm -hmm. as humans, right? So um, I, I think that's really the only logical set of steps you can have for defining what the rights and responsibilities around children are. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm prepared to be wrong. But uh, as far as I can tell, it's about as clear as I can get. No, I think that's apt. And um, I, like I said, I have had no episode on the podcast on this topic yet. Um, so I'm glad that we're addressing it, actually. Cool. One thing, so two things I wanted to bring up. One is that, so in this theoretical system where you would have a child and your representative arbitration organization would come in and say, hey, we know you had this child. We would like you either to sign on to our trust provisions for this child, either that or we are going to, we would like you to give the child to an organization that we approve of, like uh, Lutheran Social Services, or that's just one option. Any number of, uh, you know, ad infinitum for the, the, the number of people who might be willing to uh, take on that responsibility in lieu of its uh, biological parents, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfectly valid, perfectly valid a guardianship or something like that. Um, another thing is there there is common law rules in terms of contracting with minor parties. And I think it's interesting that we have all of a sudden had this positive decision of age of majority. Um, I believe that's a lot. It's by statute. It's 18 is age of majority. There actually is a set of common law principles that dictate um, when children will be held to their contractual obligations. And the rule is, so gen there's a few rules of thumb to go by, but it's either 18 or we will hold children to contracts if they are contracting for necessities. And we also look to um, how mature they are. But 
mostly it's for necessity. So if mom and dad are crack whores, um, right. and you know, little Jenny needs, you know, she's 16 years old and she's has to be mature for her age. She entered into a contract to buy a, a vehicle to get herself to school. She has, um, taken out, I don't know, life insurance for her younger siblings. Yeah. So particularly mature yeah. and this would be up to the arbitration uh you know whoever whoever decides to try to enforce these contracts um they could easily show like hey look she she can pay for a car because she also took out a life insurance policy she's obviously shown that uh, she has all of the implied uh requirements for emancipating herself she may not have have stood before the community and said yes i am now an adult right i'm ready to take on my rights and my responsibilities um but in this case like it's not difficult to argue that she has all these things right mm -hmm. now the the beauty though is that it's going to vary um just like the statutes do because we have some form of uh, competition in government. It's poor these days, but uh, it's there, right? So I, I think the same thing would would definitely happen within these communities that uh, you would have some kids who, you know, at, at 12, you're expected to get a job and, and fend for yourself, right? And uh, while others, you know, they live in their parents' basement until they're 30. And no, I'm not in my parents' basement. Don't, don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and it really does depend on the culture and the community. And I think that's one thing that I've really learned in studying comparative legal systems as well. Um, I mean, I've I've had, I don't know if it's libertyweekly.net forward slash 37 was a primer on customary legal systems. But a lot of people don't know, but most of the world actually is still governed by local and tribal legal systems that have, yeah. a lot of them don't have coercive power. So it's really interesting to see how their culture and, um, well, the role that culture really does play in setting up systems like this it, it really is the law of the land yeah like uh, how do you think um the amish deal with this stuff it, it's yeah. through through rigorous and absolute social isolation and social control right mm -hmm. they, they they don't even have to have guns or or hit people or anything like that but you know say the wrong thing in church and you're not spoken to by the rest of the community for a month or whatever right so th there are perfectly peaceable and perfectly effective ways of doing this, of, of um, you know, pr protecting the youth and uh, enforcing contracts and, and doing all this stuff that the, the state has deleted because the only thing that matters for the state is force. Yeah. It's a yeah. destructive force. <laughs> Well, so, yeah. no, I, so I think, um, I think we got that topic down, man, for the most part, I agree. Uh, you had, you had other good topics you want to bring up too. So I don't want to neglect those. Ah, well, I, I think we got the, the, the best one out of the way. But uh, we had also talked about um, Trump's border wall, uh, how that relates to illegal immigration, and if it's effective or whatever, right, what the plan might be, and how that also relates to Milton Friedman, and a lot of his findings, and, uh, and Thomas Sowell's follow on for all those other things. Um, absolutely fascinating. I love it. Uh, what, what do you think about all those things? Yeah. So I did read, um, what is Milton Friedman's most famous book His uh, capitalism free and freedom. Oh, uh, I was going to say free to choose, but yeah. free to, maybe it was free to choose. No. Well, I know the one that's on my bookshelf is capitalism and freedom, but okay. So I don't know if this has been articulated to you before Kyle, or if you've heard it from people like Dave Smith, but the, 
a lot of libertarians would say, you know, some would say be open borders or some would be pros, uh, pro closed borders. And some of some have taken the more the alt right path. I am a private property borders um, advocate. And like I say, I don't know if this has been articulated to you before, but so it's kind of in the middle in a sense is that, well, you if it's your property, you choose who comes on the property and who doesn't. And in that sense, it's it's not that, you know, if if every single person in and it's it's not it's not a very pragmatic solution to the current problem um, because you know if every single person who owns property along the border decides that we're not going to let these XYZ people pass through um, but if if the problem is is that we are not currently living under that system right you have socialized property in the United States um, well I do I do sympathize with some people who are concerned about changing culture um, the only reason why changing culture really matters is because the state is involved um, now we did just get done saying that legal systems do change based on what the culture is um, so that is a problem too but I think that the solution is that we need a again a free market in the movement of people itself so you have a state that is involved that is providing uh, perverse incentives bringing people into the country when I don't think there is a free market equilibrium of people migrating into the United States. So I think that the solution is what the solution always has been, which is privatized, decentralized, but also end the war on drugs and the wars abroad uh, and the welfare state. Those are the three big things. And I really don't think that the answer has changed. Even Ron Paul, his his solution, he's not for uh, building a border wall, but he has recognized what is the distortions in the market that are bringing an influx of people into the United States. Well, those are the three big things. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad we started with the, the first one because I, I think you hit it right on the head. And and actually, if you, um, I sent you a link to a clip of a video of uh, Milton Friedman, which um, maybe you can put in the low bar or something like that. But uh, in his own words, he basically says you can't have open borders and a welfare state at the same time. Like they are incompatible. And uh, I don't know how many times people like found that quote and used it against him because he was such a pro open borders uh, person. But I, I think Friedman is unfortunately taken out of context when he says open borders. I think he's more in um, the stance of our previous conversation, which was like the, the high moral, um, super abstract, uh, what if someone just walked in out of the out of the blue, right? Um, in the case that Ancapistan exists, I agree with you. The only borders that would exist would be private property, right? And then it, it wouldn't matter who your neighbor ended up being or where they were from, right? The the community would enforce that. Okay, this is a this is a voluntarist uh, setup, right? So uh, you you can wander around and ask people for change all you want, um, or you can you can build your house on the plot of land that you own, and those things are all perfectly acceptable, right? And then the culture would change slowly and and through through actual interaction, through mutual respect, through trade, through through the things that have always changed cultures beforehand, right? Um, the the border wall, exactly as you put it, is a waste because we're not actually targeting the center of the problem. And I, I agree with you entirely that the perverse incentives are what the problem is. Mm -hmm. the, the 5 billion or 15 billion or whatever it's going to take to actually build the wall is pennies compared to the amount of welfare and free stuff that and, and enforcement and rights and process and all that other stuff uh, that we are basically handing out to the rest of the world. So it's only rat rational rational that people who can brave the storm of trying to cross the border illegally are doing it because it pays. It pays really well. Um, and it brings me up to another controversial uh, question or another controversial part of this is uh, 
I, I'm asking myself now, like, what's what are the benefits of being a United States citizen if if literally anyone can walk across the border and you have a, a large portion of our own country saying, yeah, oh, they can vote, they can get uh, socialized medicine, they can get uh, welfare checks, they can get housing, they can. Um, have children and go on the fast track to be a citizen. Like th those are all things that citizens in the States are supposed to have in the first place. Right. So you know what I get as a citizen, I get taxed. That's what I get. Right. They, they get to sequester away all of their, their earnings and send it wherever they want. Um, but I don't, I have to, I have to tell the fed how much I made this year. And then they're going to come track me down using my, my identification number. Right. So really it seems like a net loss to me. Um, so there, there's little parts of me that as I'm building my own business, I'm considering being like, you know what, just not going to file my taxes. And if they come after me, I'm going to say, you know what, I, uh, I, I, I deny my US citizenship. I'm an illegal alien. Um, I, I live in X and Y estate. It's a, uh, <laughs> it's a sanctuary state. You can't do anything to me. Right. So, right. Um, yeah, well, that's kind of hinting on the uh, net tax. No, not the, yeah, the net taxpayer argument is that the United States or that the, the citizens of the United States have, well, money has been extorted to them, but they've been paying their taxes. So uh, they have a better claim to this land in some kind of a socialized uh, collective ownership. And this is something that Stefan Molyneux would perhaps argue that uh, as net taxpayers, we own the United States. And not only that, but you articulated it well, that these people are moving in here and they are voting certain ways and they are appealing to the authority of the state to, um, you know, affect change against me and instigating violence. So, I mean, it's, it's not even against you. It's, but it's in positive for them. Right. Right. And yeah. It's not necessarily to take what's yours, but it is to increase the power of the state to give them more money. Right. And to, to basically tell the state to F off. Right. Let's disband ICE, right? Of course, they're going to vote for the Democratic Party that says let's disband ICE because then all of their risk for for coming over the border illegally, uh, not paying taxes like the rest of the citizens, and sending as much money as they want back home, completely unchecked, goes away, right? So again, they're they're not stupid. They are only doing what's rational, and they're doing what's only possible through a centralized authority. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, talking about how the drug war has just destroyed entire parts of Mexico and given rise to the cartel that again, I, I don't, I don't mean to sound callous, but fuck what it's done to Mexico. It has fucking destroyed the U S yeah, that's true. Yeah. Like the, the, the actual country that has been feeding it here, right. Us who, who have been paying the taxes to actually do this stuff. It has devastated this country. I, I really hope in 50 years time that the, the war on drugs is, is over and all the historians will look back and be like, wow, this was, this was like alcohol prohibition, but worse. Yeah. But wait, why didn't we learn our lesson? I don't know. And it boggles the mind. It really does. You know, trying to illustrate this to people and feeling like some kind of a kook for saying that heroin and, and I don't, so I don't actually, I don't even think when I say to people, I think that, you know, meth, heroin and cocaine should be legal. I don't think that it's outrageous or it doesn't, when it leaves my lips, it doesn't sound outrageous to me, except when I see people's reaction to it. If yeah. My parents one time got so pissed off at me for saying that. And I'm just like, you know, what, where's the cognitive? Cognitive dissonance here. Everyone agrees that alcohol prohibition was a horrible idea. I right, right, and and you can turn around and and ask these same people like, oh yeah, well, okay, so marijuana is terrible, right? It's in the same category as meth. They're like, no, because I'm sure there's a lot of people uh, you know who who enjoy 
marijuana. And you're like, no, 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 wait, the Fed treats it exactly the same as these other ones. Why, why do you believe anything they have to say about meth or, or uh, LSD or cocaine, right? Um, uh, but it's a complete disconnect of logic because it's an argument from authority. Someone else says it's bad, therefore it's terrible. Right? Oh, it has well, to be taken away. I still hear it's a gateway drug, you know? I still hear that. And like, oh, okay. And yeah, so what? Yes, <laughs> right. so what? Yeah. Oh, and, okay, great. No more caffeine for you. Right. Yeah. And that just so, leads you into taurine and sugar. Oh, no. Well, in when you can illustrate directly illustrate the same effects that we saw from alcohol prohibition, I mean, you get dangerous alternatives, um, you know, you get organized crime. You get higher prices, lower quality. It uh, you get endless embezzlement of money and uh, corruption at the highest level. Exactly, um, yeah. Unneeded deaths, uh, increased gun violence of all sorts. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible. And what blows my mind most is uh, a lot of the arguments for keeping the the war on drugs going and supporters of the DEA and military operations to keep all this stuff comes from the Republicans comes from the conservative side of things, um, which doesn't make any sense to me because they should be the ones who are really pushing to be like, okay, you you guys are way out of bounds for for doing what you're supposed to be doing and protecting the common good, but they already have this bill of sale. So like, it's, it's not what the left wants, therefore the right wants it. And Oh man, I hate I hate the dualism in politics in America. It's terrible. Yeah, I mean they're half right on some issues and half wrong on others. Because you know I had I was just talking to a, a libertarian conservative. I mean more conservative than libertarian Republican, and was just getting done talking about how you know we should have guns and I should be able to keep my money and not pay you know a lot of taxes or anything like that, and then turn around and in the same breath rail on people who choose to use marijuana. It's it, I mean I just don't and but I you know not to get a little conspiratorial and I know we could do our fair share of that but I don't think the war on drugs will ever end. I think now that the state has realized that they can get so much black market revenue from these kinds of things um it will never end. How else will they pay for their wars? How I mean unless the US empire itself ends or that these governments themselves crash. Yeah, I I think only a massive failure on the a top level of government will actually stop it. I, I agree with you that there there's way too much money in fear. There's way right. too much money in lies. There's way too much money in controlling people's lives. And th- that's true for the entire state, right? And that's just how it is. And and even though like the Democrats themselves, I mean, they, they are for decriminalizing marijuana and maybe getting rid of mandatory minimums, but they still want to make heroin and meth illegal. They yeah. still want prohibition. Yeah. And they're, they're also the ones who uh, set up the NSA and are completely fine with uh, harvesting all of your data for who knows any reason. Hell, yeah. Now, now they want uh, marijuana to be legal, but then they don't want saying the N-word to be legal. Like, uh, they're shifting just in different directions. It's it's super weird. Um, I mean, it's predictable, but... Yeah, well, it, it, it makes me laugh when they say that they have principles, too. Like, Bernie Sanders has principles, and or AOC has principles or something. <laughs> really? Well, they're not consistent. Oh, no, they have principles. Right. They have principles. Does it increase my bank account? Right, yeah. No. Yes. Okay, then I am I am principled on that. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> um, that is their one principle. The I think Tim... I don't know. Do you follow Tim Pool at all? Do you know who Tim Pool is? 
Uh, I'm aware of who he is. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I saw some of his stuff a long while ago and I don't know, for some reason he rubbed me the wrong way and I, I didn't stick with him. So, he, you know, I've always liked him because he has been some kind of like, he's a radical centrist. And I feel like if I'm not only consuming libertarian media, then, you know, I'll be a more well-rounded intellectual or absolutely informed person, but he's really, he has really bothered me lately with his, I mean, he's for, the, he does not like the green new deal, but only because it has identity politics attached to it, but he's on board for everything else. I don't, I mean, and, and just the, the blatant, he's addressed ANCAPism before and just completely butchered it um, when he should know better because he hangs out with people who are ANCAPs. Um, but I, you know, I hang out with people too that I try and tell these things about all the time and they just don't get it either. So, um, but this leads us maybe into the final topic or point of discussion that we should address here, which is um, a tour around the Liberty Movement, maybe. Um, Please. I'll, I'll probably be name dropping a lot of, a lot of people's, a, a lot of people and a lot of different outlets and platforms forms too um well, maybe I, maybe i can give a little bit of entry of uh where i came across this um this particular topic and like who who brought me in and the answer is well no one um i don't know i've, I've always been a rebel and kind of an iconoclast for a long time i'm not a super outgoing person hell i was even not considering considering not putting my face on here because I, i'm just not an outgoing person very much um so i've never been like up in the face and like uh, fighting against a whole bunch of stuff, but I've gone from left to libertarian, um, more or less. And I, I lean more conservative these days in so far as uh, just the left is so, so far off the left that like, yeah, okay. Having a functional family unit is now considered conservative. Um, so right. I, I guess my major introduction in this is uh, Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell. And th those are the guys I have seen and read um, at least a fair amount. And uh, they're the ones who really, really lit the fire under me. And I continue doing the circuit back through their YouTube videos all the time because so good. And uh, Milton Friedman's Free to Choose uh, that he did on is that PBS. Yes, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. He, he did like a four or five part uh, video series on PBS for uh, as a companion to his book also called free to choose. And it is a masterpiece. It is brilliant. It, it piece by piece shows how government is nothing but failure, nothing but failure. And um, I guess that's, that's really what has got me going. And then um, I don't know, I, I think I stumbled upon your podcast on BitChute because I've been trying to stay away from uh, YouTube and the other Google platforms. And, um, and uh, yeah, I watched it a couple times. I was like, meh, fine. And Saw another one was like, all right, I really like this guy and, and jumped in. So that's the whole number of people I know in, in the libertarian movement. Uh, I, I don't really know much about Ron Paul. I don't really know much about uh, David Freeman. Friedman, I, I'm aware he's Milton Friedman's son. And uh, you were saying he, he might be a little bothered about that shadow, but uh, for good reason. Milton Friedman was genius. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, uh, so I've, I've heard some of these names dropped and um, Vance Rader or whatever his name is now, right? Um, I've heard some about him, but I know basically nobody. So take it away. <laughs> well, I think it's funny that you're of, well, it's interesting that you're of the left, but you came in through Thomas Sowell and Milton Friedman, who are considered very right figures, right? But by of the left, I mean, when I was in college, uh, mm -hmm. I agreed a lot with the, uh, not, well, what would be Bernie now, basically, which is like, oh, yeah, we, sh we should give to the poor and taxes are good and uh, marijuana should be de 
uh, you know, decriminalized and all and that taxed. other things. <laughs> I guess I'm taxed, right? So, um, although, you know, at that time, no one ever went that far in the political sphere. They said, oh, yeah, it shouldn't be controlled anymore, man. Yeah. And, yeah, then, right, yeah. and then, then they never said, like, oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to put a 70% tax on it. <laughs> Oh, why is my weed so expensive, bro? You know, I heard that. Um, I don't know if it was Stephen Stephen Clyde of the Peace and Liberty podcast who was saying that in in Denver now it's so cheap that you can get an eighth for like ten dollars, ten or fifteen dollars. That wouldn't surprise me. That blows my mind. Anyways, but, but what what you don't know is uh, housing prices and the cost of land in Denver has skyrocketed. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, because you have all the potheads from California right. and all over the rest of the country. Uh, blocking into the place just to sit on their ass and smoke weed. Right. And, yeah. You know, uh, it's not surprising, but you know, once it becomes decriminalized everywhere, then everyone gets to sit on their ass and smoke weed, and you don't have to worry about housing booms. Right. Well, now it's Michigan, and well, anyways, I so that, so yeah. Uh, don't don't call me left. Don't call me left. Damn it. Well, I'm of the right. I mean, I've always been of the right. Mm -hmm. I And I, I use that term of the very specifically. Um, I think it's just the way that you confront, the way that you think about things. And I think libertarians can be of the left or the right. But I guess the first... The, one of the first lessons or things that I would illustrate to you is that there is such a thing as thick and thin libertarianism. And I know that I've discussed this with you before in um, Discord, but perhaps I have that thick libertarianism is when you so i'm a thin libertarian and a lot of the people who i would say are real libertarians would be thin libertarian yeah <laughs> um but a thin libertarian only believes in private property and the non-aggression principle that's all that libertarianism is to thin libertarians so a thick libertarian by contrast would say that libertarianism is about the non-aggression principle and in private property but it's also about social justice or it's also about feminism or it's also oh, no. about income okay. inequality okay or, so this is the entryism we had talked about right so this the, is the the infection from the left side yeah yeah okay Right. But it's not only the left side, though. There are also other libertarians who would say that uh, libertarianism is the non-aggression principle plus property rights plus traditionalism or plus the traditional family unit or plus, you know, um, yeah, entryism. work ethic yeah. or whatever. Right, um, it's, the, so, it's the other political sides that kind of seep in. Yeah, okay. All it right, really is. And um, so to that level, you have your institutions, then maybe that would be another good place to start. Whereas you have a law and I so I, I guess I don't want to put myself out as being the authority on this because there are a lot of people that know this a lot better than me and know the history behind it. Um, I guess I won't name names, but I would think that Mance Raider would be someone who or um, Dave Smith would be someone who would know this history a bit more. Sure. Or, you know, of yeah, course, all, all right. We, we, we won't be uh, holding your word as law for this one, but okay, go good. On. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so the, there's this long standing rivalry between the Cato Institute and the Mises Institute. And Cato, the Cato Institute was named for Cato's letters, which were very instrumental in uh, the lead up to the Revolutionary War. And, um, okay. so Murray Rothbard actually named the Cato Institute, and he was very involved in the beginning and the founding of the Cato Institute. But there was a splitting of ways, and the there's a lot of talk about the Koch brothers. Um, 
the Koch brothers kind of, and I don't know too much about them, but from what I understand, they stayed with the Cato Institute side of it. So there is Koch money involved in the Cato Institute. Um, I'm not a fan of the Koch brothers. I don't think that Koch brothers really care about liberty. I think that's pretty demonstrable. You know, it's pretty self-evident. Um, but you'll have and I know a lot of people, good people that that are with it, you know, of the Cato Institute and have been involved with the Cato Institute. So I don't want to throw them under the bus, but generally they are not ANCAPs. They're not anarchists. They are minarchists or beltway libertarians. And those are two different things, too. So you you get those two institutions, you get the Mises Institute, which is straight up hardcore. Austrian economics, um, you know, Rothbardian libertarianism, Misesian libertarianism. You have your uh, Mises Institute scholars, people like Tom Woods, people like Lou Rockwell, um, Mark Thornton. Now I'm really reaching for names, although I, I can name these in my sleep. Um, so I feel I like mean, I should be taking notes because am I going to be quizzed on this after? Uh, <laughs> well, the, you'll get there after you explore the Mises Institute YouTube channel. Uh, Joseph D. Salerno. Um, I already said Mark Thornton, but um, so yeah, I could go on and on with the Lucas Engelhardt is another name. So Keith Knight. Yeah. Keith. Well, Keith is not involved with the Libertarian or the Mises Institute, but he should be. Hmm. Okay. Um, so those are the actual faculty that are associated with either they have taught at the Mises Institute or they published under the Mises Institute's name. Uh, Jeff Deist is another name. He's the president of the Mises Institute. Um, so on that side, I don't know the Cato side super well, but the Cato Institute, the, the split. So there is a big split in ideology and tactics too. You might have some ANCAPs that are with the Cato Institute, but generally speaking, they're more, they're a little more left. Um, they are more Chicago school economics, if I could say roughly in their school of thought, whereas Milton Friedman is a Chicago school economist. Um, the difference being is that Chicago school is not totally ANCAP. They don't necessarily object to the Federal Reserve on principle. Um, Milton Friedman did not object to the Federal Reserve on principle. Um, he didn't? So he, he blamed them for the, for the uh, economic crash in the 20s. And right. the depression that followed, and they he also blamed them for making the depression worse. Um, maybe he never actually stepped out and said, like, we need to destroy the Fed, but I, I don't think he was a fan. No, he wasn't, and he did criticize the Federal Reserve, but from my understanding, he was saying, well, they did this wrong, not saying that they shouldn't exist, but that in its current iteration, they're not doing things right. Um, but, you know, maybe, I don't know, you've studied Milton Friedman more than I have, but this is my understanding of what he would yeah. say. Yeah. I can't say definitively, but um, as a absolutely brilliant economist and a Nobel Prize winner, mm -hmm. I can only imagine that he understood their role in destroying the wealth of the United States. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I so I really doubt he would defend them. I really doubt it. I, I don't think I think he would defend the institution and say that it would be. Um, you know, something that needs to exist or or that it's a positive influence that the Fed itself is. Okay, um, I, I'm, I'm going to watch um, or, or I invite all of us to go watch Free to Choose again. There's a, a part where he walks through the printing press that's printing dollars behind him and he actually turns the machine off to talk. Um, you can see people in the background like, <laughs> um, I swear in that in that particular section, he's like, uh, this is what's causing all of our inflation. This is what is uh, mm -hmm. damaging our economy. Like. Uh, again, maybe he doesn't actually step up and say like the the Fed needs to be abolished. But again, I'm I'm pretty sure he he paints a very fatalistic picture about the Fed. Oh so. yeah, 
and I don't disagree with you that he would, um, you know, but again, there's there's the difference between criticizing the Fed as it currently operates and objecting to central banking as an institution itself. OK, um, um, I'm also unsure about where where the line, the actual cutoff for him would actually be. But I'm yeah. willing to say that uh, I really doubt that he would be in favor of keeping the Fed around. If, if it came up to bring it down, he would let it go. There's also the the uh, negative income tax issue with Milton Friedman ah, too. Uh, oh yeah, that's a fun one too. Yeah. Um. So there are those things, you know. Not to say that Milton Friedman wasn't a great economist. You know, he was a genius by all accounts. And um, you know, his son, I'm a bit more of a fan of. But to get to the fundamental difference between the Chicago School and right. and the yes, Austrian right. Back on top. is, and and this plays into exactly what we're talking about, though the to illustrate it exactly would be that the praxeological approach that Mises put forward is that fundamentally economics is the study of human action. It is a social science. It is not a science. It is not a um, empirical science. Mises would assert that uh, economics is the study of a priori reasoning and logical deductions that we cannot... Um, program program the economy or study it in that um, these equations don't necessarily allow us to predict or to say what went wrong or what happened or anything like that. Not oh. to say that studies or some empirical evidence doesn't aid us. It's not a complete yeah. rejection of empiricism. But it's um, more analysis than uh, construction, right? right. Hmm. Okay. Um, and and so on the Chicago side, while the Chicagoans are still free market, they aren't necessarily anti-state by its very nature. Um, but they do not they do not reject empiricism, and they are empirical in a lot of their analysis as well, from what I understand too. So I'm not a student of the Chicago School in as much as that you know I've read some Milton Friedman. Um, they would they would be maybe classical economists and not so much as Chicago School. I think that. Those are, I don't understand exactly the difference between classical economists and Chicago school, but maybe it's not a very large difference. Um, but okay. I don't want to mince my terms either because, like I said, I don't want to, you know, put myself forward as being a complete authority on these. Oh, things. no, come on, man. You're the world authority. You got to get all this stuff down. Well, I do have a podcast and put myself out there. but Therefore, he's an authority. <laughs> right. So it's a way to try and be an authority, I suppose. So yeah, but that's, that, that's that was that. the difference there. And um, another practical difference in strategy would be that the the uh, the Cato Institute would really is more of a Washington, D.C.-based, policy-based think tank institution that has a lot of financial support from sources that are a little questionable, perhaps, like the Koch okay. brothers. So Makes they're in, they're involved one, one in hand washing the other for sure. Right. So and and again, these are allegations, and I know people that are involved in the Cato Institute. So I don't want to throw them under the bus. Um, but yes, I do have these convictions against it. Um, sure. So uh, since we're talking about people in the space, um, I'm a huge fan of Milton Friedman and his protege Thomas Sowell. Right. Uh, how do Thomas Sowell and David? Friedman um, see each other? Are, are they aligned? Are they against each other? Like, is there a reason? You know, I have no idea. Okay. I I haven't read as much Sowell. I have a couple of Sowell's books and he is, I mean, he is bam, right on topic. He's the one that uh, he's really with the African-American community, right? And really explaining in their terms. No, exactly. no. He's, no, he's, he's better than that. He says, yeah. forget race. He says, forget race. Uh, he, he, he sit, sits down with all of the, the stats and he's like, look, stop. 
just so he he said this in the 60s right he, he was he was a young brilliant brilliant black student right and he, he sat uh in a whole bunch of the conversations that he had with uh, milton friedman's interviewers and stuff like that he, he had these big debates and he was basically calling out these people for being like stop stop treating blacks as if they cannot do anything stop it right and then he'd also turn around and say like blacks stop treating yourselves like you can't do anything stop it he, he's amazing at doing all of that and he brings all in all the statistics and beats them over your head and it's ah oh, i love the dude he is I mean, so so smart i've heard that he yeah he's a tremendous writer and i i do have a couple of his books but i haven't had a chance to really dig through them yet um <clears throat> so yeah there is that i'm not sure what the relationship is between them i do know that to speak a little more about david friedman because i have read his books um, we had an episode with him on the show that Keith interviewed him. He, so he is, he has been an ANCAP from, you know, very early times from the sixties and the machinery of freedom. The first edition came out in the sixties. Um, so he, but he again, and he has had debates with Bob Murphy, who is a Misesian Austrian school economist. They have had debates about empiricism versus the praxeological approach too. So like I said, you do, you know, you have classical school economists who are empiricists who are also ANCAPs too, but the fundamental difference between a David Friedman and a Murray Rothbard would be that Murray Rothbard is from the natural law he makes more of like a pure moral argument for libertarianism. Whereas I think that David D. Friedman is more of a consequentialist or, or a utilitarian. He doesn't necessarily believe that libertarianism is the right way because, I mean, he will make moral arguments, but it's not fundamentally a natural law, natural rights kind of thing. And uh, Murray Rothbard really differentiates this in For New Liberty in the first chapter. And I think that would be a really good read um, for you, Kyle. Just the first chapter where Murray Rothbard traces the ideological roots of his brand of libertarianism um, and, okay. and, and really condemning too maybe people like uh, David Friedman for being and it's been a while since I've read it. He doesn't name David D. Friedman by name at all. Um, but condemning those people who, you know, don't believe in libertarianism because it is the correct moral answer. From the foundations. Yeah. From the foundation in that. Which is why I wanted to have that the our our first conversation about like what are the moral foundations. We can we can get into practicalities later, but what yeah. are the moral foundations? So it's, it sounds like I would probably agree with Rothbard. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I do agree with Rothbard from, I mean, fundamentally, I mean, I am a Rothbardian, but I, I do also see David Friedman's point and I, I envision, you know, at least my own, um, my own goal for what a libertarian society would be. I pull more from David Friedman's, um, his machinery of freedom, but, um, also from Hans Hermann Hoppe, who I don't know, have you heard the name Hans Hermann Hoppe before? Probably from you before, but I, I know nothing about it otherwise. Yeah. Okay. Hans Hermann Hoppe is probably the greatest living libertarian mind, uh, in my opinion. He is a very, very controversial figure. He was oh. Murray Rothbard's protege. Okay. Uh, he studied under Murray Rothbard. At Man, he, he and Sol should fight. That'd be great. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I don't know that they would necessarily disagree either. I mean, ah. so you could, I mean... Man. All right. 
Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, no, no, so no. He's, a, he's a protege of Rothbard. Hans Hermann um, Hoppe, it just, um, if I could go back in your shoes and not ever have heard of Hans Hermann Hoppe, he, he wrote uh, Democracy, the God that Failed, which is, I mean, among a lot of other books, uh, but he, what is a theory of socialism and capitalism is probably one of the, I mean, he just relentlessly smashes socialism and, and uh, he's also come up with argumentation ethics, which is a way of proving that basically asserts that you cannot argue f so he he goes through he takes the a priori reasoning um from its very foundation so a priori arguing that statements you cannot contradict certain statements um so take taking from that logical you know statement that cannot be contradicted and building its way up he argues oh, saying that it is logical yeah he lays down some axioms and says like uh, this is my foundation that you can't go any further uh can't go back any further and then move forward from there okay gotcha well he That's basically fair. asserts that there is no way to argue for socialism or against private property without contradicting yourself because which is an axiom because you, you can't prove that otherwise but you can attempt to disprove right right which is uh i think perfectly reasonable all right. Fair enough. Cool. All right. Uh, I, I, I yeah. should check that one out. Yeah, no, you should. I mean, he is badass. But um, from his side, too, is maybe where, and this is where it gets controversial, is that a lot of people have not read what he has written and has instead interpreted what he has written from memes that they see on the internet. And they have taken his statements out of context and gone down the alt-right rabbit hole and a lot of people see Hans Hermann Hoppe as being this figure of the alt-right because they only know him from memes and from statements taken out of context. Okay. Um, this is where the Hoppian physical removal comes from in the Pinochet memes of throwing people from helicopters. If you've oh, seen so, well, I've seen the throwing commies from helicopters thing. Yeah. But. Yep. So a lot of people, yeah, they would they throw in the uh, physical removal uh, from that too. Is that because Hoppe said in Democracy, the God that failed, he you know he rails against low and high or um, low time preference and high time preference. So he would rail against high time preference individuals and makes some controversial statements about uh, that could be taken as racist. At least you know in this day and age, is everything. Um, but I, I fundamentally I don't believe Hans Hermann Hoppe is racist. Um, um, although he has said thing, you know, some things about degenerates or whatnot, people who are high time preference and, you know, um, so there's that side of it. Okay. Um, I, I wasn't gonna, you know, I can't get into specifics because I just, you know, frankly, I haven't read Papa in quite some time. Okay. So the problem with his exposure is that he has a lot of, uh, meme oriented exposure instead of actual learned, uh, reasonable counter arguments. Right. Fair enough. And there are, you know, to be fair, there are some people who have actually read him and ha and do make some arguments too. I think that <laughs> says where the problem comes into play is when you become someone who believes that everything one person says is the truth. So, you know, you'd get a lot of Hoppian or Rothbardian disciples who, you know, they believe in everything that Rothbard or Hoppe says and take it as granted just because Rothbard or Hoppe said it. That's That would be very weird. Uh, to me, that seems weird in the libertarian community, because basically when you look at it, we all advocate for thinking for yourself. That's the whole idea of anarchy. It's the whole idea of volunteerism. So why, why would you take arguments from authority from anyone? Really? Right. Like, don't get me wrong. I love me some Friedman, but because he has really solid ideas, he has very good argumentation, and he's a fantastic presentation figurehead for it, right? He was wrong. He was wrong. 
-hmm. He was wrong about open borders. He was, well, right. sort of. Um, he, he was wrong about negative income. He was absolutely wrong. He, I'm sure if he was alive today, he, he would look back and be like, yeah, oops. Well, and um, to that matter too, you know, Rothbard was wrong about some things. And, um, you know, when it comes to Hoppe, there, there are maybe some cultural things that he has said that I, I don't particularly agree with. Um, I, I couldn't tell you exactly right now exactly what it is because, you know, again, I, I haven't read Hoppe in a while. But, you know, I should. I should be reading him. But, you know, I've See, been busy. <laughs> and th this is another topic we should touch on sometime later that we had hinted at before we started the show. But uh, the the culture of cens censorship in this, like, where, where you're dancing around this idea where you don't want to be called a racist, right? right? Just because you agree with someone's position or or have to have to label them as racist and therefore don't listen to them, right? So, right. well, in that, yeah, and and even now, I mean, if to go back and listen to this, you know, I danced around it just even subconsciously. I did dance around any kind of, and, and we all do that now. And I remember going back and maybe it's just cause I was young, but I do remember a day in time when I didn't know what SJW meant. And I honestly did not worry about that. You know, isn't it strange that it's already been built into our culture enough where you really at times have to really be careful. But, um, to go back to what you said about um, we're all individualists in the sense that... Um, oh, the arguments from authority based on these figures, right. yeah. I remember being a new libertarian and not really... I mean, everything's sunshine and daisies when you first discover these ideas because you realize how correct they are. But I've, I've become more skeptical uh, being in the community a while and seeing that... You know, I remember when I first came in and I was talking to Jerry about how great everything was with libertarianism and whatnot. And I don't know how long Jerry had been in this space maybe two years this is the first co-host yeah um, but he he was like you know i remember saying something like um well it's not possible that there's dumb people in this movement right i mean they all came to libertarianism so they must be somewhat intelligent right yeah no no, no. <laughs> there's dumb people and every you know and and conversely there are extremely intelligent people on other sides too sure so I guess totally. it's all just about being humble and trying to seek truth and um, not being afraid to be wrong. Nobody, nobody knows all the answers and we're all products of our environment. And, uh, you know, certain questions are given certain answers and you're going to go down certain paths and it's just how it goes. Yeah. Uh, just don't stick a gun in my face and tell me what to do. That's all I want. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the crux of it, man. Um, Oh, well, I mean, I could go on and on, too, about the, the different circles of the community. I mean, you have your crypto space, too. Um, you have people like uh, Jeff Berwick of the Dollar Vigilante. Oh, yeah. And we had talked crypto as well. And Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, sorry. I, I just remembered that uh, we had talked about cryptos as well. And uh, I, I'd, I'd really like to connect with some of the other people in the crypto space of the libertarian movement. That'd be fun. Well, and it's too bad that we didn't record that conversation because it was a really good one, too, that I haven't addressed on the show either. So, um, but it's yeah. Time, perhaps. Again, um, you know, the in and I don't know the crypto community as well. I just know I know Jeff Berwick, I know Vin Armani, and maybe Vin Armani is someone who I was would suggest more if you wanted to get into that space because Vin knows a whole crap ton about it. Um, and he doesn't have kind of the controversial drama that Jeff Berwick has associated to his name, too. And okay. very recent, excuse me, very recent drama, too. Um, I think I don't know if I brought that up to you in the Discord channel, but. Um, all the drama surrounding Anarchapulco. Um, yeah, yeah, we did talk about that, actually. Yeah, so Jeff Berwick, yeah. I believe he's one of the main organizers behind Anarchapulco. Okay, yeah. And there's a lot of drama associated with that. Yeah, uh, I think we, we stopped talking about it because there was 
there's gonna be too many details and like i didn't have enough of a position to say anything so well um, and you'd have to learn all about that space exactly to even exactly. follow the drama too but, okay well so on this roadmap uh since we're talking about more modern people i feel like like friedman and uh mises and rothbard and all that stuff like they're the dinosaurs of the movement what about who who's new um this manspreader guy right he's yep. he's new um he, he just unmasked himself apparently um and then there's there's you and keith and the uh friends against government guys I, like again i'm i'm just pulling out people i've heard of um mm -hmm. but i don't know what the space actually looks like today like who's important today well, david friedman but i would still put him in the old guard no offense david no he is um david david is in the old guard although he does have a son patri friedman who is also an ancap and he is very i mean his son he's like 30 mid 30s i think he's oh, very huh. involved in the seasteading movement which i don't know <laughs> if you've heard of that um cool but that's a whole yeah that's a whole nother thing too so he's involved with that um wait well, let me guess. It's the uh, harebrained idea that you can go build an artificial island in the ocean somewhere, stick a flag in it and call it Ancapistan, and it's now an anarcho-commune, uh, basically, right? It, in a sense, but I think that all of the, and again, I don't know the specific vision, but I think it's it's driven by a corporation, not a corporation, but uh, some kind of business venture or some investment um, and I think it's organized by detaching platforms that could float autonomously and then retach. Okay. But it's it's still the same idea, right? Go, if if yeah. there's no if there's no land that's not been claimed, then claim the sea, right? Right. Well, and yeah. you partnership with uh, micro nations too. And I don't know if it was French Poly Polynesia where they were planning on partnering with that nation and that nation allowing them to exist within as an autonomous section. But here, here's this space that you can occupy. Okay. So one, I love it. Right. Uh, it it's brilliant. <laughs> it's really thinking outside of the, the box. Um, <clears throat> but it, it sounds really cool. I'd really like to see what they have uh, for, for their answers for different issues, right? Um, it also sounds absolutely insane that right. th there's no way this is going to work. If it takes off, uh, somebody's going to fucking torpedo this thing. That's what I would think too, unless they were making a lot of money from it. Unless And well, no, especially if they're making a lot of money from it. Somebody's going to come in and be like, you know what? All you guys are evading U.S. taxes. Right? Uh, and then we're going to be like, no, no, we're, we're not U.S. citizens. It's like, mm, yeah, then who, who's going who's gonna to hold your court date then? Mm. Right. Uh, we're just going to take your shit, okay? So like, this is the, I, I don't want to derealize. Sorry. Well, uh, I mean, they could. I was going to go into a different rant. Right, well. They could, yeah. Well, but um, yeah. So there is that. I mean, in terms of the the bigger, I guess the bigger anyway, figures cool. from cool. the Mises and cool. side. Um, yeah, and we could have an episode on seasteading. Um, but so I would say from the Mises Institute side, the biggest people are Tom Woods. But and I I find it very surprising that you have not heard of the Tom Woods show yet because. The Tom Woods show is the like the preeminent libertarian podcast that's out there. Okay, um, I know James Woods, but he's he's some Republican dude, right? Who yeah. who has mastered the art of tweeting. I fucking love that guy. He's hilarious. <laughs> he is. Uh, well, from what I've seen too. Um, but I mean, you so you have Tom Woods. He okay. has the preeminent libertarian podcast. He is a New York Times bestseller. He is has had a lot to do with the Mises Institute, um, is a main professor. He does a lot of stuff with Bob Murphy, who is also one of the biggest economists from the Mises Institute. Um, so they have a podcast together called Contra Krugman, where they debunk all of the New York Times columns that Paul Krugman puts out. And so it's pretty epic. They have over 100 episodes. <laughs> That's so, cool. That's I genius. Mean, no, it's bad at... Oh, Oh, 
you would like Peter Schiff. Have you listened to Peter uh, Schiff? Did we not talk about Peter Schiff? I, I swear we did. No, we did. Yeah, we did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, about the cryptocurrency specifically. But, oh yeah. So maybe you wouldn't yes. like that aspect of Peter Schiff. So we did. Uh, talk I know. I know enough about Peter Schiff. Yeah. Uh, not not a huge ton, but like he's the same kind of guy that's like, oh, the government's fucking up all this stuff. Uh, gold's where the real value is. By the way, you can buy gold on my website. Right. Suck a dick, Peter Schiff. Come and, on, man. Well, and also, um, you know, the, the government sucks at everything, but we still need them for courts and the military and you know oh oh yeah and and to to fix sorry to um uh, to pick a reasonable interest loan rate that that won't crash the economy like he never actually rails against the fed in the same way that you're saying that like maybe milton friedman didn't didn't say no, that the I fed needs to go away peter schiff really does think we should end the fed i think i think i can confidently uh, say that i'm i'm gonna hold you to the same standards about about uh friedman versus schiff that it could be i don't think I don't know if either of them have actually come out and said, like, we should abolish the Fed. Instead, I think most of their positions are they're doing it wrong. Well, no, I mean, um, so the Peter Schiff actually was um, Ron Paul's pick for treasurer. Hmm. And Ron, I mean, one of Ron Paul's big things was end the Fed. I really, I mean, Peter is an Austrian economics guy. So he does, I mean, he does believe that we should end the Fed. However, I don't know Peter Schiff as a libertarian, though. He's not a libertarian, is he? He is. I yeah, he identifies as a libertarian. Yeah. No way. I thought he was. I thought he was a hard, hardcore conservative. Oh no 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 nope. He's a libertarian. Oh. He um. So I I gotta warn you. I am a bit of a Peter Schiff fanboy. Oh, but, I don't care. No, I, Enjoy who you want. No, I I'm just saying that um. I'm gonna uh, okay. I'm gonna warn you. I'm probably gonna poke holes in Peter Schiff's oh, stance and arguments. No, it's I, fine to criti- I don't. Obviously, we just got done talking with you know arguing arguing from authority, and there's things right. Peter says I don't agree with for sure. Yeah, but he uh, well, and as we spoke of before, um, he's been nothing but wrong about cryptocurrencies like uh, he, he he doesn't understand them fundamentally he thinks they're gold 2.0 and no, I, I, I can't get behind that i can't right. get behind I would, that. I would agree that he does i don't think he really understands them but i i think the the jury's still out on his at least his predictions in terms of bitcoin um but he i mean no, he, he said it was garbage for a long time and then uh, did. and then didn't yeah but well we we can get into that too we are anyway like, anyway um, yeah. oh um, oh man, I had a I had a direct question. Um, oh, John Stossel. I also love the hell out of John Stossel. You know John Stossel? I do. Um, a little bit. I know that he was on. Was he on Fox too? He was. Uh, and then he moved to Reason TV. Oh, he and, did. Okay. Yes, and then uh, Garth Gillespie from Reason, Reason kind of went completely off the deep end. Um, like he's he's a really really left libertarian. I think he calls himself a libertarian, but he has extremely left views. Which is, is it Nick Gillespie? What did I say? Garth. Oh crap. Uh, yes. Is I it? Nick, I think is, it's Nick Gillespie. Does he wear a leather jacket all the time? All the time. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. Nick Gillespie. Sorry. Um, um, yes. Oh, no worries. Um, Nick. So Reason. Reason is more of a beltway left-leaning outlet, if you haven't collected that yet. Okay, all right. I was going to ask you where they land, because I I do see them that way. They're a lot more left, and uh, I think Gillespie and Stossel um, butted heads, and Stossel ended up splitting off basically to do his own thing. Um, He he now has his own Stossel TV channel, and it's fantastic. Nice. Um, no, I have to check that out. Um, what about um, Andrew Napolitano? Do you know about him? Nope. Well, he was on Fox News. He was, I think, a an appellate judge in New Jersey. Um, but he he's a Misesian Rothbardian type, and he's even kind of 
He's spoken at the Mises Institute and has even kind of hinted that he's an anarchist. Um, so he's he's really cool. Um, Is that where you got your your inspiration? Being an anarchist in law? <laughs> no, I I was actually oh man a libertarian oh. before I chose the legal profession. I think that's what I'm going to start calling you. So it, instead of like a brother-in-law or mother-in-law, you're an anarchist-in-law. In-law. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good, actually. Um, well, let me let me run through it all too, because I there's there's even more a lot. Um, let's see other figures. So have you listened to James Corbett at all? I've heard the name probably from me. He so he was the one of the biggest 9/11 you like 9/11 Truth YouTubers when it first kind of started getting big. Um, but he, he's also a voluntarist and cap. Uh, I think he comes at it from a little bit more of a left perspective, say more of like a Larkin Rose, who is another YouTuber, um, and has written a book. Uh, Larkin is also involved with Anarchapulco. Um, but he, Larkin Rose's specialty is talking to people like having direct one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and walking them logically through this and showing them the arguments. But Larkin is more of, he's of the left a bit more and he makes more i think well very sound logical arguments but more a little bit more from empathy um but james corbett is is that james has done a, a crap load of documentaries um about various conspiracy theories about various aspects of history and you know the term conspiracy theory is not right but you know work about the new world order and the powers that shouldn't be and all that kind of stuff um james is has actually one of the main inspirations for me starting my show and brought me into the space too at the same time i was discovering libertarianism so hmm. um he's he's excellent and he's a nice guy um he's been on this show before and i actually we have a date coming up too um next this month march um so he he's great he has a very large following um and he's very well known at least and maybe very well known first for being the conspiracy guy but second for being a voluntarist and a libertarian too okay um Corbin. so he, right. he's really cool i'd check out larkin rose as well right. um stefan kinsella is a mises institute ip lawyer from texas um another anar uh, anarchist in law and, right? yes yes another anarchist in law and actually a very close he works or has worked very closely with Hans Hermann Hoppe. Um, oh. And I'd say that Kinsella, um, and he, he listens to this show too, um, and I'm planning on having him on. It's long overdue that I have him on, but I would say he's one, from a theory perspective, he's one of the best minds that we have in terms of like property rights and, you know, theories of contract and a little bit more on the cutting edge he's written a whole lot of papers oh um, man you should you should ask him about the child question because yeah, uh, yeah. that's all on the abstract theoretical side which well you know i would ask kind him, of my specialty so i'd love that I, w I would ask him that question and then he would just send me a bunch of links to papers that he's written that i should have found and read already before asking him <laughs> um well, so, okay well then yeah uh put those in the show notes like fantastic <laughs> no right yeah no i'll, I'll have to stay um, there so i mean there's that there's the lines of liberty podcast which is another great libertarian podcast uh okay. it's a libertarian variety show um mark it's three guys john odermatt mark claire and um oh my god 
I can't remember the he does the uh, Electric Liberty Land podcast. Um, so it's three different shows, and uh, Brian McWilliams is the Electric Liberty Land. So it's three different shows that they each do Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, so that's a that's a good show. They've been around for a really long time. Uh, there's Dave Smith from Part of the Problem. Dave is a comedian, and he's actually a pretty successful comedian that lives in New York City. And so he is on the Gas Digital Network, which is uh, a podcast uh, a media outlet a digital podcasting outlet from new york city he does that with a bunch of his comic friends um but michael malice is also has a show on that gas digital network and michael malice um is a celebrity ghostwriter who wrote um there's this famous ufc fighter that he wrote the the biography matt hughes he wrote matt hughes's biography he also wrote a really famous um north korea book called dear leader and it's like written from Kim Jong-un's perspective or Kim Jong-il, his father's perspective about Korea and their history. And so he got really famous for that. Um, but he is the snarkiest troll, like even better than James Woods. So follow him on Twitter, Michael Malice. Um, I'm not he's, on Twitter, but yeah. Oh, well, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, that well, is we've, good. We've covered this. Yeah. But well, um, everybody, anyone who wants to actually hear anything about me, sorry. I'm not, I try to stay away from social media. I, I stay away from YouTube. So uh, what about the alternative yeah. social medias? Um, I've. Uh, I have some throwaway accounts on like mines and bit shoot and stuff like that. They're mostly just enough to like harvest some memes and watch uh, videos, right? Like Liberty Weekly and a couple other shows. Hmm? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, so, Michael Malice and Tom Woods are actually really good friends too. Okay. Uh, so let's see. I think I, I hit up all of like kind of the main points. Oh, Prof CJ, Prof CJ from the Dangerous History podcast is really cool too. Um, so he's a historian or he's a history professor at uh, a community college, but he has come out with this amazing podcast where he really goes in depth on historical topics from a Rothbardian perspective. And I mean, it's super high quality stuff. He has a great radio voice too, and okay. it's very well researched and really entertaining. It is made nice. like yeah um so i mean there's that too i mean okay, well now yeah. we're starting to get into the kind of obscure side of things so i guess now's the time to ask how many voluntarists or anarchists or however you want to call them these days um how many do you suppose there actually are in the u.s these days like what, what, what do you suppose the size of the community is so Maybe. me personally i'm really the only one i know yeah like like on a on a personal level um Except for, of course, uh, you, but this is our first real interaction in any kind of meaningful way. Well, I guess our, our first talk was nice, but point is that uh, you're a brand new figure in my life. Like, I can't think of anyone else that I could seriously sit down and they'd be like, yeah, voluntarism, let's do that. In real life, I know maybe two people, two or three. Well, maybe four, because I met up. There's a group that meets in the Twin Cities. Um, so I guess I've met various people who have maybe less than less than 15 in person. Okay. Um, I'd say so our numbers are tiny, very small. I'd say less than 500,000 in the United States. Okay. Maybe even that's a large number, but it's, I mean, if I go on Twitter, I see tons and tons of accounts just popping up all the time. So, I mean, if you go through and search on Twitter, um, which I've done through trying to, you know, Re retweeting anarcho memes doesn't make you, a, you know, a Rothbardian follower or someone who's actually willing to put into practice the idea of the non-aggression principle. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I, I think some some people get woke enough that they will share those memes and just see what happens, right? Some of them are hilarious, so it's it's really hard to judge. But okay, I uh, I don't know. I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around like, okay, what's the, what's the community look like? We have these standout figures. Um, we have schlubs like ourselves. And <laughs> well, I haven't even told you about Scott Horton yet, who's probably one of the most important. Oh, why didn't you start there? I well, I mean, I guess from my from my perspective on the most important issue, which is war and peace, by far the most important issue, Scott Horton is the best libertarian figure out there. He is an encyclopedia when it comes to the war issue, foreign oh, wow. policy. I mean, he that, that guy can just go. So he runs the libertarianinstitute.org, which my work is featured there. Keith's oh. work now too, um, through my show. But uh, Pete Raymond, Mance Raider's work is there. Also, Kyle Anselone, who is um, not me, not yeah. you, <laughs> Kyle Anselone, but he he does foreign policy focus, and he is a member of what we call the Libertarian Union, which is a podcasting group created by myself and Daniel Elwood of Actual Anarchy and a bunch of other guys. So there's like eight or nine shows that are in the network, wow, cool. but not all of them are active at this moment. And we try and do like our State of the Libertarian Union talk show every month, but we did that for about a year, um, and then I remember those. Yeah, yeah, now it's hard to get people to together to do that. So, um, and I I think that you know there's a bunch of B side libertarian podcasts, and there's even more C side libertarian podcasts, I guess you could say. But um, the more the merrier. Fair. I think everyone should have their own show. I mean, everyone that wants to have one, obviously, but it's great for you know just de-stressing and expressing yourself and feeling like you're part of the conversation. And you know, the coolest part is when people come up to you and they're like yeah you know you really changed my mind on these kind of things um which actually was never really my intent my intent was more selfish in terms of i had these thoughts in my head i was evangelical and i wanted to network with other people and feel like i was making a difference and um well, as someone else who or as someone who's also in a creative industry um if you don't create for yourself uh to some major level right? You're not going to be able to keep going anyway, right? right. So I, I promise, well, okay, let's take Stefan Molyneux, right. for example. He's yeah. still going because he strokes his own ego. He, he basically uh, mentally masturbates on camera every yeah. time, but yeah. you get some gold inside of the mental semen in there every once in a while, right? So, well, I mean, he brought so me- So don't, don't, don't shame yourself on doing this for your own reasons. And yeah. in fact, I would say you should do it for your own reasons. Yeah. You should, you should follow things that, that you're interested in because you'll bring out the passion in yourself and uh, I promise there are other people who will find it also resonating with them. That's how it goes. Well, it always surprises me too, because I never, even to this day, I don't really see myself as being someone who's very good at convincing people or persuading people or even. That's that's not what you, that's not your job, right? That's not what you're, what you're doing. You're, you're presenting a problem, presenting mm -hmm. information and presenting your solution. Yeah. I think that you, you don't have to convince anybody. You don't have to convince. Right. Well, and I, I think that Ron Paul says too, I love, I mean, I'm a big Ron Paul fanboy. I love the guy. Um, but he always says, cause people come up to him and ask him, what should I do? You know, what can I do to further the cause of Liberty? And he's like, I don't know. What do you want to do? What are you good at? And I think that, um, different people have different skill sets and different roles. And I, I don't know, I don't know how I see myself, but I, I try to envision other figures in the 
the Liberty movement is having their role. Um, like where I think that, you know, Corbett is kind of the historical conspiracy showing you the dark side of the state guy. And Larkin Rose is the sitting down and having direct one-on-one conversations with people guy. And, you know, some other like um, Vin Armani is the crypto guy and, and Mance Raider is the uh, fuck the police and memes guy, you know? Um, oh, what's that? You mean there's like competition and specialization in these things? A division yeah, right. of labor? How, right. how does that happen in, in a free market system? No way. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's just, uh, it's great to be a part of. And I just like having, you know, these conversations. And um, I feel, you know, I feel the more in the last couple of weeks I've been having, I've been making it a point to, instead of playing video games or something, having more of conversations with people. And that is when I really find this to be the most rewarding, but also kind of stressful too, because, you know, you're talking to strangers. <laughs> You're having very intimate conversations about things that you very passionately, deeply, personally care about with complete strangers. So why would that be stressful, though? Like, oh, th- this is the wonder of the Internet, that you can always just be like, nope, block. Right. Right. Like, well, this is exactly how the, the social... Uh, social distancing and all that kind of stuff that you're supposed to be working with from the uh, NAP perspective, right? Embrace it. It's fine. That's right. I was so. going to say, weren't you the guy who was just saying at the beginning of this conversation that you were not an outgoing person? I'm not. What, what, what do you mean? No, of course not. Right. But you're on the internet talking to a complete stranger. You know, we, we all have our, have our things every once in a while. And, uh, Again, I have the the I think you called it evangelical fire, right? To all oh, right, uh, yeah, yeah, that's good, man. Um, so, yeah. uh, well, I think um, you know, in the interest of time, maybe we should close up at least the podcast portion yeah. of this too. But um, no, I think this was a really good episode. Tackled some great topics that I haven't addressed on the show anymore, um, or to this point at all. But let me, um, you know, all the normal plugs as we're closing up here. Uh, the Liberty Weekly podcast is on Patreon. Um, Kyle is a supporter as well as ten or nine other figures that support us on Patreon. So really do appreciate that. It really helps pay our operating costs and helps me invest in new equipment and books. And uh, you can get a lot of good bonus content as well, like extra conversations, early access, access to the meme cache, eBooks, all that good stuff. Um, Also the Amazon affiliate link, libertyweekly.net forward slash Amazon is a great place to uh, throw some bones that's where I get some funds and gift cards to help buy books for the show as well. And I have been doing the Liberty Weekly email list where I've been sending Tom Woods style emails uh, out and uh, some book reviews too. So uh, that's been a, a great new asset uh, to the podcast as well and has helped our listener base and support. So those are the ways that you can support us as well as sharing, liking, commenting, subscribing, reviewing on iTunes all that good stuff. But it's been a real pleasure to have you on, uh, Kyle, and I'm sure I'll have you on again in the future. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been great. All right, right on. Well, thanks everyone for listening and we'll catch you next time.